0: It's funny, last night I was going over all those names while I was lying in bed. Uh, I knew that I had uh, two couples to announce that had a baby that was born and three couples to uh, announce with the uh, child dedication. I was going through all these names and I told Nancy last night, I said, okay, I just got to make sure I match all of these couples up with their right kids and I went over it again and again, wrote things down. And then when you get up on stage, and I started to announce Amanda and, I don't know if you heard that pause, I almost forgot Sheldon's name. It started off bad right at the beginning, but uh, anyway, we got through it. It's amazing the difference when you go through this stuff lying in bed, and when you uh, do it when you're up on stage here. Uh, Just want to say thank you to those uh, pastors that were here with you the last couple of weeks. We had Mark and Mark Frogley, and also uh, Jamie McDonald, and they continued on through the John series. They did John chapter 5 and so we're able to get right into John chapter 6 as they just continued on and really did a great job with that. So this morning we are on John chapter 6 in this series through the gospel of John. Well we had an incident at my last church when I was in Edmonton at Greenfield Baptist. This happened about 10 years ago When it was our annual Christmas banquet. And our Christmas banquet was not for the largest crowd. About 300 people would come out usually for this Christmas banquet. But on this particular year, we actually ran out of food. It was buffet style. People could get up and load up their plates and sit down. And after about 200 people had gone through, we realized that the food was gone. And we still had about a hundred more people to go through. And at that point, you can't go to the two hundred people that have gone through already and start asking them to put some back. And so, what happened is people came to me. See, there's this idea that is in some people's minds that pastors are all powerful, that we can solve every problem. And so, people will come to the pastor about everything, uh, about the temperature. About the volume of music, about the coffee, about someone's perfume that they sit next, next to. Uh, when we actually have bad weather, my neighbors who know I'm a pastor, they even come to me and they say things to me like, aren't you a pastor? Can't you do something about this weather? And, and I remind my neighbors all the time, I say, yes, I'm a pastor. I'm not a witch. I don't do weather. Uh, The late Calvin Miller was a pastor for a number of years. And he relays a story in one of his books. After preaching a sermon which he says was one of his best. A sermon that went into the rich depths and the monumental impact of Christ. And his crucifixion on the cross. And what that meant for our lives. And he said that after giving this glorious sermon... He was standing at the back shaking hands as people in this congregation were leaving, and one lady came up to him and said, Pastor, uh, there's no toilet paper in the ladies' bathroom. And so, when the food ran out at the Christmas banquet, uh, what did people do? But they came to me, Pastor, we've run out of food. Could you maybe multiply the loaves and the fish? And so, and this is no word of a lie, this is what I ended up doing. And what we did do, we ordered KFC. And that's what we ate. Uh, We also started a tradition next year at the Christmas banquet where we had people serve with uh, the people that came through instead of let people serve themselves. So we changed a few things there too. There's an event in Jesus' life where he and his disciples feed a crowd Of a lot more than 300. It's a story that's found in John chapter 6. But it is one of the best known stories of Jesus' ministry. Because it is one of the few events in Jesus' life that is recorded in all four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk about the story. And it's the story of the miraculous feeding of the 20,000. Now some of you may know the story... As the feeding of the 5,000. But as we read the story closer, it says that the men alone numbered 5,000. It's an unfortunate reality of history that men or that women and children were often not counted. And so, if you, in this instance, begin to count and add in the women and the children who may also have been there, it would probably have been at least, maybe even more than 20,000 people. Now, to just give you a bit of a perspective of what 20,000 people is like, Rogers Arena, where the Canucks play, fills itself to capacity at 19,000. So that would be like feeding everybody in that place. I don't know how much they cell in one evening at a Canucks game, but I'm sure it's quite a lot of food and a lot of beer. I think also that it's a miracle that Jesus was able to even preach to a crowd this large before the days of amplifiers and microphones, although when you look in the 1700s, we know that John Wesley, George Whitfield, and other evangelists like that also, without amplification, preached to crowds this size and Even larger. And so we're going to look at this story of Jesus and the feeding of the 20,000 this morning in John chapter 6. It begins like this After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd. Just look at the picture that we had back up there. That's a huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill, sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all of these people? Jesus was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Now, don't you hate it when teachers do that? They ask a question, but they already know the answer. Uh, Jesus asked this question because he was testing Philip. He already knew, he already had in mind what he was going to do. So why ask the question? Although I encourage you never to ask that to a teacher. If a teacher asks you a question in class, don't say, well, don't you already know the answer to that? That's not what the teacher's getting at. The teacher wants to know, do you know? Or the teacher wants to get you to begin to engage your mind to tackle the problem before you. And so Jesus, yes, he has in mind, he knows what he's going to do, but he first comes to Philip, and he asks this to test Philip. And so Philip pulls out his abacus, He moves around a few of the beads, and then he says to Jesus, Jesus, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for everyone to have a bite. You want to plan a banquet, a feast, for every single person sitting in Roger's arena? Eight months' wages might not cover the cost. To feed all of those people. There's a story in the Old Testament, it's the book of Judges, where a man by the name of Gideon is called by God to fight against the Midianites. The Midianites have been oppressing the people of Israel, the people that Gideon is a part of. And God calls Gideon to deliver his people, to raise his army. And to fight against the Midianites. And so that's what Gideon does. He goes around the land of Israel. Gathers all the people that can fight. All the men that are of age. That have been trained. And that can go to battle against the Midianites. And he gathers an army of 32,000 people. He brings the army before God. And says, okay God, this is the army. You've called me to fight against the Midianites. This is your mission. Here's the people that are going to go on it. And then God says in the story of Gideon, a very strange thing. He says, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid, whoever is afraid, they can leave and they can go home. Twenty-two Thousand of them went home, leaving only 10,000 left. I don't know about Gideon's recruiting methods, but obviously he recruited a lot of cowards. Because about two-thirds of the army went home once they had a right to leave if they were afraid. But what kind of a message and what kind of a command... Who that has ever led an army or a general would ever say like what God said here, your army's too big. That seems like the most ridiculous thing ever. Your army is too large. But I can almost hear Jesus saying the same thing to Philip. Eight months wages Jesus. Even if we could gather eight months worth of money to buy bread for all of these people. It would barely feed them. Only to hear Jesus say, Philip, the problem with eight months wages is not the fact that it is too much. Eight months wages Philip is, or The opposite, eight months wages, Philip, is too much. It's not, the problem with eight months wages is not that it's too little, Philip, but that it's too much. What am I going to do with eight months wages? If we actually gathered eight months wages and we fed these people, the people that gave could boast. They could then take the credit and say, we fed them. We pooled all of our money together or some rich person in the community put his money forward and that person could boast. That person could take the credit for it. The problem with eight months wages, Philip, is not that it's too little so that it would barely feed these people. The problem is that it's it's too much for me to work with. Just like 32,000 soldiers, too many. It's always hard being the Phillips in the class, it's always hard being the first person to answer the teacher's question, particularly when the teacher's testing you. So how much food does Jesus need to serve a crowd of 20,000 if eight months' wages is too much? Well, this time another student of the class comes forward and this time it's Andrew. Andrew. And Andrew, in verse 8, says this. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this large crowd? You have to wonder what motivated Andrew to even bring that up. I, it wouldn't even dawn on me if I was there looking at the crowd after one of the Canucks games. Somebody said, hey, we got to feed all these people before they go home. It wouldn't even dawn on me to say, hey, i, I got five nachos here and two hot dogs. Uh, but, but what is that among so many? Why did Andrew even bring it up? after God had reduced Gideon's army down to 10,000, the weird thing about the story is now these 10,000, and now these are the 10,000 brave soldiers to go and fight against the Midianites. Now Gideon brings these 10,000 before him, and once again, God looks at the army and says, they're still too many. So he's going to put them to another test. He says, bring them down to the spring, and I will sort out who will go or who will not. Go, bring them to the spring, and let everybody drink. And then watch what they do. And when Gideon does that, he finds that his soldiers do one of two things. A number of his soldiers get down on all fours. all Their knees, their hands, they get down, and they just start lapping up the water as if they're a dog. And then some other of his soldiers, they kind of get down on one knee, they use their hands, they scoop up the water, and they drink the water out of their hands. We have no idea what, why one did the other, and why somebody else scooped up with their hands, but what God does when he looks at that is he says, all the people that got down and lapped up the water like dogs, send all those people home. When Gideon does that, they find out that there were only 300 of the 10,000 that scooped up the water in their hands. All the rest, 9,700, got down on their hands and knees and lapped the water up like a dog. Maybe it was to check out their battle sense. Those that scooped the water up in their hands, maybe it was because they were alert. They kept looking forward to see if the enemy was around. Those that got down on their hands and put their face in the water weren't attentive. Who knows what the reason was, but God chose the ones that scooped the water up. Now his army, that was at one time 32,000, then down to 10,000, now 300 people to fight the Midianites. It's a ridiculous strategy of preparing an army. To go to war. But then, when the army was only 300 people left, we read the Lord told Gideon, With these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. I'll work with 300 because 32,000 was too many, because 10,000 was too many. Andrew, I will work with these five loaves and two fish because eight months' wages is too much for me to work with. Then Jesus says, tell everyone to sit down. So they all sat down on grassy slopes. The men alone, as I mentioned earlier, numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterwards, He did the same with the fish. And they all ate as much as they wanted. They didn't get, get a tiny little piece like we do in communion. They ate as much. As they wanted. And after everyone was full. Jesus told his disciples. Now gather the leftovers. So that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces. And filled 12 baskets. With scraps left by the people. Who had eaten. From the five barley loaves. In both the case of Gideon. And the feeding of the 5,000. God conceded to using the 300 men to fight a vast army and win. uh, To using five loaves and two fish to feed a vast crowd of possibly 20,000 people and have 12 baskets left over. But it should be noted that God conceded to working with 300 And to working with five loaves and two fish. Because to answer the question, how much food does Jesus need to serve a crowd of 20,000? Is to properly understand that five loaves and two fish is still way too much. There's a Latin phrase that theologians use to describe what the Bible teaches in regards to to how God created It's the phrase ex nihilo, and it means out of nothing. God created everything out of nothing, which means that Jesus doesn't need five loaves and two fish. God doesn't need 300 men. Even Satan knows this. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Satan said to Jesus, why don't you turn these stones into bread? You don't actually need loaves and need to multiply other loaves. You could turn stones into bread. Satan knew that. But what Satan also needed a little bit of a lesson in is that Jesus didn't even need stones to make bread. Jesus could make bread out of thin air. Actually, Jesus doesn't even need air. Jesus simply needs nothing. He can create bread out of nothing. God is the one who made everything that there is out of nothing. The Apostle John, from whose gospel we read today's story of the feeding of the 20,000, begins by saying this. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. How much does Jesus need to create bread? Absolutely nothing. In Colossians, Paul writes the same thing. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. By him, all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth, things that are visible, things that are invisible. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. This is the one that was asking his disciples, how are we going to feed these people? This is the one, the one who was before all things and created all things out of nothing. No wonder it was simply a test. How much does Jesus need to feed a crowd of 20,000 people? Absolutely nothing. Not anything. Zero, zilch, zip, zippo, zot. That one I looked up in the thesaurus. I had never heard of it before, but it means the same thing. Nothing. Now, this is not doctrinal minutia, because what you believe about this matters. Matters. Ex nihilo upholds that God is not dependent upon anyone or anything other than himself. He is totally self sufficient, totally complete. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need people for companionship. He doesn't need cream to make ice cream. He doesn't need Lego to build houses. He doesn't need sperm to make babies, as we all know from the virgin birth. God is entirely self-sufficient, entirely self-satisfied, entirely complete within himself. Ex nihilo says that God alone is the eternal one. God alone. Which means that this rules out any kind of polytheism. The idea that other gods existed eternally alongside of God for companionship and some kind of host of other beings in the heavens. It also rules out dualism, which says that for eternity there was an equally powerful good God and bad God who were battling it out to see who wins the universe. It rules that out. Ex nihilo also rules out pantheism that says that God is his creation. That somehow this pulpit and the carpet and the trees and the rocks and you and me are all a part of God. It rules that out because we realize that we all came from God and derive our life from him. It rules out any kind of panentheism which says that God and his creation need each other. That creation is dependent upon God, which yes it is. But panentheism also says that God is dependent upon his creation, which is not true. God is complete. God can do anything. He has eternally and harmoniously existed as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one God eternal. That's the God we worship. God doesn't need anything. See, it's dangerous to believe that we need to somehow contribute to God's work. Even if it's only five loaves and two fish. False teachers use this all the time to encourage people to give. Give your money. Sometimes they refer to it as seed money. If you have faith, give send us your money. Send us your, your might. Send us that one coin. Because with that, you will produce God to do something for you. God will then bless you. God will multiply your loaves and your fish and your bank account if you just put down a little bit of money up front. When that happens, what takes, takes place is that these preachers become rich, while the 20,000 in the masses still have no food. It's dangerous to feel like God needs our contributions, that we somehow have to help God out, that God acts when we meet him halfway. We'll do our part, God will do his part. And the danger comes out in this story as well. See, what we read in verse 14 is that after the people saw the miraculous sign, and this is going to be a theme. We talked about this when I was here last time. This is a theme all throughout the signs in John, is the precarious nature of them and how people often take them wrongly. After the people saw miraculous signs that Jesus did, they began saying, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Now, at that point, you might be saying, what's wrong with that? Doesn't Jesus want to be? No one is the prophet who's come into the world. Aren't these people getting it right? Doesn't that sound good? Well, they're only half right. We always have to be careful to make sure that we hear people all out. You'll hear many Muslims that will say to you, they believe in Jesus. And before you say amen to that, make sure that you let them explain exactly what they mean. They got it half right. And a half truth can be more deadly than a total falsehood. Because right after they said, surely this is the prophet who is coming to the world. We then read in verse 15. But Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force. Withdrew again to the mountain to be by himself. See, they were saying, this is the one. This is the prophet, this is the king, this is the one we've been waiting for. But Jesus knew right away, I'm not the prophet and king that you're thinking of. And so Jesus had to get away. They were going to make Jesus king by force. They intended to help Jesus out. But in their help, they were going to be a hindrance to Jesus' ministry. It reminds us what we read a few chapters before in John where after the miracle of turning the water into wine we read, because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. And then again, just like this, the very next words were but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell Jesus about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. Here we have two instances. One where it says people began to trust in Jesus, and another one where people began to say, this is the prophet. But in both cases, Jesus withdrew because he did not trust their understanding of who they wanted Jesus to be. They wanted a Jesus on their term. They wanted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And we have to always be careful with that phrase. Because a personal Lord and Savior can easily mean a Jesus on my personal terms. I want a Jesus on my terms. And it's dangerous to think that we can control God that he performs tricks like a dog if we just give him the right treat. I give him my five loaves, I give him my two fish, and now I'm waiting for my banquet. I fast, now isn't God supposed to come through and do this for me? We bargain with God over the sale of our house, the state of our children, the consequences are of our sin, our relationship with another person, Bargaining, bargaining with God. If I do this or if you do this, I'll promise to not do this. But Jesus will have none of it. And so Jesus tries to escape the crowd. Who want to make him king by force. Uh, But when Jesus is unable to get away from this paparazzi that just seems to be able to find him no matter where he goes. This time Jesus steps up and says, Okay. You want me as king? You want to have me be the one that's the Lord of your life? If you want that, then whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus saying You want bread? I'll give you real bread. And I will be the one to offer it. There's no part in this that you can contribute. You can't offer one loaf and one fish. There what I have to offer there's nothing That you can contribute to. Because it will not come. From my creation. Nothing created. Has the source of life in it. Nothing you can try to offer me. Can contribute to life. Because everything has been created by me. And therefore everything is dependent. On Me for its life So if you're if you're trying to find life if you're trying to find meaning purpose hope in the things of creation, they will always fail you Because they can only find life connected to me Apart from me they are nothing When I fed you the other day uh, The miracle was only an illustration it fed you for a day. Bread is bread. It has no lasting value. It even caused you to pursue me in the wrong way. To try to make me your king on your terms. Your personal savior on your personal terms. But if you want real life, you're going to have to go back to the beginning of time. To before the beginning of time. To the immortal one. To God himself. The very essence of life and you must eat and drink of the life of this god if you are to eat and drink the life of this god then you tap into eternal life then you find the source of eternal life and obviously by jesus saying you must eat and drink of my body and my blood, Jesus was making the audacious claim that he himself was this God he was talking about. You can't contribute to this. It's all of me. I have to offer you my life. I, the creator of all out of nothing, can offer you life. There's nothing you can do but receive it. God didn't need 32,000 soldiers to defeat the Midianites. Jesus didn't need eight months' wages to feed a crowd. Jesus didn't need a crowd of 20,000 people to make him king. God didn't need 300 soldiers to defeat the Midianites. Jesus didn't need the five loaves and two fish. To feed the crowd. Jesus didn't need the 12 disciples. Instead, like you and I, he simply gives us the privilege of being able to work alongside of him. He simply gives us the privilege. We are loved by God, chosen by God, then for no other reason than because. That's it, because. And how much is this needed in our culture today of always trying to earn one another's favor, always trying to earn our way in our jobs, in our school. I was just reading an article last night about the high rates of suicide among so many different people. Younger people, older people, retired people. The the rates of despair and depression in our culture because of a culture of continual overachievement. Everybody's a failure unless you're absolutely number one on top. We always compare ourselves to the absolute people that are number one on top. And when you look at the lives of a number of those people as well, they're just as Much lives of despair. We're always trying to achieve. We're never good enough. We're always trying to earn our parents' favor, our teachers' favor, our church's favor, and we project all of that onto God, and we're always trying to earn God's favor, and we always feel guilty and shameful, and we can never achieve, and it brings upon us this despair that at its nth degree manifests itself in suicide. What a contrary message to the gospel that says, I love you just because. And there's nothing you can do to achieve it. There's another Latin term called solo gratia, which means grace alone, which fits very well in the fact that God created everything out of nothing. And in November 1999, Joint Council of Lutherans and Catholics, together, grace alone was defined like this. By grace alone, through faith in Christ's saving work, and not because of any merit on our part, we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit. Let me just repeat that because when we begin to understand that, it changes our whole outlook on life. It's by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ and his saving work. Not because of any merit on our part. That we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit. He renews our hearts. And he equips us and calls us to then do good works. The good works come out of love. Our love for God, not merits that we're trying to earn. You may feel like nothing. You may feel unworthy. But God's really good at working with nothing. He makes great things out of nothing. Sometimes I hear people say to me, if God only knew what I was like, he'd never accept someone like me. And I need to remind them on two fronts. If God only knew, God does know. He knows everything. And he accepts you. We sing amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. God is really good at working with nothing and making something out of it. If you here at Bethany, if you knew what I was really like, you would never want to listen to me preach again. And in the same way, if I knew what every single one of you were really like, I'd never want to preach to you again either. But isn't it wonderful that God does know And he accepts us, broken, bruised, the nothings that we are, and says, I still love you just because I accept you. And if we come and say, but God, I have nothing to offer, he says, that's perfect. It's those that come to me with agendas and with things to offer that often get in the way of me really doing the work in their life. Jesus, I've got nothing to offer is when Jesus says, that's exactly what I like to work with. Brokenness. Nothing. Jesus offers himself. He does all the work. He's the source and the author of life. All other blessings that come from him are to remind us that the real blessing is him himself. If that's forgotten, then his blessings and his miracles actually get in the way. They become burdens and barriers to seeing the true God. We surrender to him, not because he needs us, but because he loves us. We recognize that it is only in him, because he is the life, that real life is found. Without him, life is but a shadow, it's but a mist, and it's gone tomorrow. Because he loves us, Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. This morning we are going to move into a time, very appropriately, of communion. I'll ask those deacons and elders that are